We've been going through the book of Ephesians. You may recall that. And last week we went through Ephesians chapter 6 we're in, so we're almost done with the book. And I was going to complete the book. had a nice sermon prepared on prayer and being ambassadors for Christ and all this. And uh, I'm not an overly mystical person, but I felt the Lord had something different that he wanted me to do regarding further speaking about us being soldiers of Christ. Um, We covered verses 10 through 18 last week, and I was going to do verses 18 through 20 this week further on that. But um, instead, I want to read to you and show you a couple short videos about some Christian soldiers. How many of you ever heard of C.T. Studd? Okay, Charles Thomas Studd. He was a famous cricket player in England back in the 1800s. He lived from, the, I believe, the 1850s to the 1920s. He was converted to Christ as a young man after becoming world-renowned as this cricket player, which, of course, none of us even know what cricket is. It's not the little bugs that chirp. It's a game that they play over there. He was from a very, very, very wealthy family. And after converting to Christ, he gave away everything that he had, and he went and preached the gospel over in China. And later, he went and started the Heart of Africa mission and preached his final days over in Africa. So this is like massive. You may have heard the saying, one's life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That was C.T. Studd who coined that. He also was well known for, um, some people like to sit in church with the steeples and the bells, but I prefer a rescue shop within a yard of hell. So these are some of the things he was known for. Well, he wrote an article, while he was still alive, named The Chocolate Soldier. The Chocolate Soldier. And I want to read that to you, and I have edited it down just a little bit, because it's pretty lengthy. But this is going to take me 30 minutes to read this, and I'm a good reader. Ask my kids. So hopefully you'll stay engaged and you won't fall asleep um, while I'm reading. And then after I'm done with that, I actually want to show you an eight-minute video clip that Jim Caspers has kindly put together for us. And then after that, a six-minute video clip dealing with the same topic of us being soldiers for Christ. So why don't we stand, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll go through the chocolate soldier. And I will try not to make comment. Those of you who know me know how difficult that is. But I will try to restrain myself and just let him speak through this chocolate soldier article. Lord, we give thanks and we give praise to you for this time that we have today to hear about the lives of other Christian men and also to hear from another Christian man, C.T. Studd. Lord, I ask and pray that you use what he wrote nearly a hundred years ago for good here today amongst this congregation. Use what's done here today to build each one up in the faith to encourage each one to serve you faithfully in the earth. Lord, we just ask that you would be glorified here 
And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. May lives be forever different because of what's done here this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. He titled his article, The Chocolate Soldier or Heroism, The Last Chord of Christianity. And here's what it says. Heroism is the lost chord, the mission note of present-day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Who has not been stirred to scorn and mirth at the very thought of a chocolate soldier? In peace, true soldiers are captive lions, fretting in their cages. War gives them their liberty and sends them. Like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or perish in the attempt, battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes him whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and vigor of a hero. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ, a hero par excellence. Braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seductions of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting at the smell of fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear little delicate constitution. To the chocolate Christian, the very thought of war brings a violent attack of og, while the call to battle always finds him with the palsy. I really cannot move, he says. I only wish I could, but I can sing, and here are some of my favorite lines. I must be carried to the skies on a flowery bed of ease. Let others fight to win the prize or sail through bloody seas. Mark time, Christian heroes, never go to war. Stop and mind the babies playing on the floor. Wash and dress and feed them 40 times a week till they're Raleigh Polly puddings, so to speak. He's talking about the pastors, the clergymen, treating their congregants like little babies. Round and round the nursery, let us ambulate. Sugar and spice and all that's nice must be on our slate. God never was a chocolate manufacturer and never will be. God's men are always heroes. In scripture, you can trace their giant foot tracks down the sands of time. Noah walked with God. He didn't only preach righteousness, he acted it. He went through water and didn't melt. He breasted the current of the popular opinion of his day, scorning alike the hatred and ridicule of the scoffers who mocked at the thought of there being but one way of salvation. He warned the unbelieving, and entering the ark himself didn't open the door an inch when once God had shut it, a real hero untainted by the fear of man. Learn to scorn the praise of men. Learn to lose with God. Jesus won the world through shame and beckons us his road. Abraham, a simple farmer, at a word from the invisible God, marched with family and stock through the terrible desert to a distant land to live among people whose language he could neither speak nor understand. Not bad, that. But later he did even better, marching hot foot against the combined armies of five kings, flushed with recent victory, to rescue but one man, 
his army, just 318-odd fellows, armed like a circus crowd. And he won, too. He always wins who sides with God. What pluck, only a farmer, no war training. Yet what hero has eclipsed his feet? His open secret, he was the friend of God. Moses, the man of God, was a species of human chameleon, scholar, general, lawgiver, leader, etc., brought up as the emperor's grandson with more than a good chance of coming to the throne, one thing only between him and it, truth. What a choice, what a temptation. A throne for a lie, ignominy, banishment, or likely enough, death for the truth. He played the man. Refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin and success for a season accounting the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Again I see him, now an old man and alone, marching solidly back to Egypt after 40 years of exile to beard the lion in his den, to liberate Pharaoh's slaves right under his very nose, and to lead them across the great and terrible wilderness, a wildcat affair, if ever there was one. When were God's schemes otherwise? Look at Jordan, Jericho, Gideon, Goliath, and scores of others. Tame, tabby cat schemes are stamped with another hallmark, that of the chocolate brigade. How dearly they love their tabbies, yet think themselves wise men. Real Christians revel in desperate ventures for Christ, expecting from God great things and attempting the same with exhilaration. History cannot match these feats of Moses. How was it done? He consulted not with flesh and blood. He obeyed not men, but God. David, the man after God's own heart, was a man of war and a mighty man of valor. When all Israel were on the run, David faced Goliath alone, with God, and he but a stripling, and well scolded too by his brother for having come to see the battle, What a splendid fool Eliab must have been, as though David would go to see a battle and not state a fight. They are chocolate soldiers who merely go to see battles and coolly urge others to fight them. They had better save their journey money and use it to send out real fighters instead. Soldiers don't need dry nurses, and if they did, the Holy Ghost is always on the spot and ready to undertake any case on simple application. No, David went to the battle, and stayed to fight, and won. Wise beyond his ears, he had no use for Saul's armor. It cramped his freedom of action. He tried it on and took it off, quick, sharp. And besides, it made such a ghastly rattle, even when he walked, that he could not hear the still, small voice of God, and would never have heard him saying afterwards, This is the way to the brook, David, and there are the five smooth stones. Trust only in me and them. Your own homemade sling will do first class, and there, that's the shortest cut to Goliath. The chocolates ran away. They were all chocolates, but David ran upon Goliath. One smooth stone was enough. David's secret was that he had but one director, and he, the infallible one. He directed the stone as he directed the youth. Too many directors spoil the sport, and too are too many by just one. Thus Christ said to his soldiers, He shall teach you all things. 
He shall guide you into all the truth. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. One mediator only between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, one director of Christian man, God the Holy Ghost, whose directions require indeed instant obedience, but not the endorsement of any man. The devil needs red-hot shot, fresh from the foundry of the Holy Ghost. He laughs at cold shot or tepid, and as for that made of half iron and half clay, half divine, half human, why, you might just as well pelt him with snowballs. Whence did this raw youth derive his pluck and skill? Not from military camps, nor theological schools, nor religious retreats. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ is enough. Paul determined to know only Jesus Christ and look at the grand result. Whilst others were learning pretty theories, David, like John, had been alone with God in the wilds, practicing on bears and lions. The result, he knew God and did exploits. He knew God only. He trusted God only. He obeyed God only. That's the secret. God alone gives strength. God adulterated with men entails the weakness of iron and clay, chocolate, brittleness. Yet hero as he was, even David, alas, once played the role of chocolate soldier. He stayed at home when he should have gone to war. His army far off, in danger, fighting the enemy, won. David at home, secure, within sight of God's house, and often going there, suffered the one great defeat of his life, entailing such a bitter, lifelong reaping as might well deter others from the folly of sowing wild oats. David's sin is a terrific sermon, like Lot's preaching in Sodom must have been. Its theme, don't be a chocolate soldier. In his simple, quick, and full confession, David proved himself a man again. It takes a real man to make a true confession. A chocolate soldier will excuse or cloak his sin. He tumbles in the mud, flounders on, wipes his mouth to try to get the bad taste of his acted lie out of it, and then goes on his way saying, I have done no wickedness. A self-murdering fool, killing his conscience to save his face like Balaam beating the A.S.S. who sought to save his master's life, being a chocolate soldier nearly did for David. Beware. Nathan was another real Christian soldier. He went to his king and rebuked him to his face, like Peter's dealing with Ananias. Only David embraced his opportunity and confessed, and unlike the chocolate soldiers of today who go whispering about and refusing either to judge, rebuke, or put away evil because of the entailed scandal for sooth, veritable soapy Sams, they say it is nothing, nothing at all, a mere misunderstanding, as though God's cause would suffer more through a bold declaration in defense of the truth and the use of the knife than by the hiding up of sin and the certain development of mortification in the member involving death to the whole body. He that is a second time led captive by the devil needs neither plaster nor treacle. Treacle is a soft, sweet substance. He that is second time led captive by the devil needs neither plaster nor treacle, but the brace, rebuke, and summons to repentance of a righteous man to effect his salvation. We are badly in need of Nathans today, who fear God and naught else, no, not even a scandal. Daniel was another hero. Of course he was. Was he not the man greatly loved of God who sent an angel to tell him so? 
I love to watch him as he walks with firm step and radiant face to the lion's den, stopping but once like his master en route to Calvary to comfort his weeping and agonized emperor. God shut the mouths of the lions against Daniel, but opened them wide against those who had opened their mouths against his servant. A man is known by his works, and the works of Daniel were his three friends, who, rather than bow to men or gold, braved the fiery furnace. Again we see him going to the banquet hall, and hear his conductor whisper in his ear, Draw it mild, Daniel. Be statesmanlike. Place and power again for you, if you are tactful and wise, especially tactful. And Daniel's simple reply, Get thee behind me, Satan. There he stands before the king, braving torture or instant death, but it's the king who quails, not Daniel, who tells him to his face the whole hot truth of God, diminishing not a jot. John the Baptist, a man taught, and made and sent of God, good old John. By the way, how many of you have seen that movie about Daniel that came out about two years ago? I got, I got to tell you, you got to see that movie. You know, when I saw it, I thought, oh, here's another Christian movie, right? Because most of them are pretty pathetic. And this movie about Daniel, I watched it three times. I never watch a movie twice, hardly. You know, because it's like, why would I do that? I already saw that. I watched the movie three times. It is phenomenal. Anyways, John the Baptist, a man taught and made and sent of God, good old John, who doesn't love and admire him? Why, even Herod did. A genuine deficiency of oil and treacle in his composition. He always told the bang, flat truth with emphasis. As he loved, so he warned. As he loved, so he warned. He knew not how to fawn. He wooed with the sword, and men loved him the better for it. They always do. Thus also he faced Herod after six months in an underground dungeon, and he, a man of God's open-air mission, brought straight in before the king, surrounded with all the might and majesty of camp and court, blinking at the unaccustomed sight of light, but by no means putting blinkers on the truth, he blurted out his hot and thunderous rebuke, Thou shalt not have that woman to be thy wife. A whole sermon in one sentence. As easy to remember as impossible to forget. John had preached like that before. Like you, Latimer. He was not above repeating a good sermon to a king, word for word, when the king had not given sufficient heed to it. But here are other foot tracks. Outrageous ones. They can belong only to one man, that grandest of Christian paradoxes, the little giant Paul, whose head was as big as his body and his heart greater than both. Once he thought and treated every Christian as a combination of knave and fool, then he became one himself. He was called fool because his acts were so far beyond the dictates of human reason and mad because of his irresponsible, fiery zeal for Christ and men. A first-class scholar, but one who knew how to use scholarship properly, declaring the wisdom of men to be but folly and determined to know nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The result? He made the world turn somersault. His life was a perpetual gamble for God. Daily he faced death for Christ. Again and again he stood fearless before crowds thirsting for his blood. He stood before kings and governors and turned not a hair. He didn't so much as flinch before Nero, that vice president of hell. 
His sufferings were appalling. Read them. He trod in his master's footsteps and so received. God is always just in his favors. The same splendid compliment that Jesus did. All forsook him. So there were some chocolate Christians in those days too. Anyone who forsook Paul must have been made of chocolate. Doubtless the chocolates excuse themselves as they do today. Who could abide such a fanatical, fiery fool, such an uncompromising character? Nobody could work with him, or he with them. What a lie. Jesus did, and they got on well together. A tactless enthusiast who considered it his business to tell every man the unvarnished truth, regardless of consequences. He won his degree hands down and without a touch of the spur, a first-class one, too, that of the headman's axe, next best to that of the cross. And so the tale goes on. Go where you will through the scriptures or history. You find that men who really knew God and didn't merely say they did were invariably paragons of pluck, daredevil desperados for Jesus, gamblers for God, fools and madmen, shout the world and the chocolates. Yes, for Christ's sake, add the angels. Nobly they fought to win the prize, climbing the steep ascents of heaven. Through peril, toil, and pain, O God, to let us grace be given to follow in their train. The chocolate Christians of today can at least boast of having ancient pedigrees. There are chocolates a la Reuben who have great searchings of heart and make great resolves of heart too, but somehow they still sit among the sheepfolds listening to the pipings of their much-loved organs and church choirs. It's good to have a great heart searching. It's better to make a great heart resolve. But if instead of obeying we squat among the sheep, leaving our few hard-pressed brethren to tackle the wolves by themselves, verily we are but chocolate Christians." You made a great resolve to go to Africa for Christ a year or two ago. Where are you now? In England? Yes, yes, lollipop. There are chocolates miraz, who earned the curse of the angel of the Lord. War was declared, the battle about to begin, the odds were outrageous, and miraz, you may remember that in Judges 5.23, they were the ones cursed by God because they wouldn't join in the fight, remained in England, attending conventions until the battle was over. Then he went in, comfort and security as a cook's tourist. Doubtless, they said, they couldn't fight till they had been properly ordained. And besides, there was so very much to be done in fat, overfed miraz. And surely to feed a flock of fat sheep in a safe place has always been considered the ideal training of war. As though the best training for the soldier was to become a nursemaid. Chocolates do Balaam, begin first class, and earn the name of prophets. Then they develop a squint, melt, and finally run out of the frying pan into the fire, thus Balaam. One day he couldn't get his left eye to look at God. It would look at earth and mammon, and that shit of a girl miss popularity. He ought to have done as God told him and plucked it out. But he said that was too much to ask of any man, and besides, he wanted the best of both worlds. He had a hearty desire to die the death of the righteous, but he wasn't willing to pay the price of a righteous life. He hadn't the pluck to curse God's people, so he made plans for others to make them sin. But one day, while his dupes were putting his chestnuts into the fire, they fell in themselves and Balaam with them. Numbers 22 through 24. I counsel thee 
to buy of me eye salve, that thou mayest once again have a single eye and be enabled to see the folly of flirting with the world. Chocolate Demas, who left old fiery hard-hitting Paul for an easier path, he said he thought Paul would wink at or slobber over sin instead of rebuking it. He was so very fond of the knife, you know, and he never would use sticking plaster because he said it never healed the sore but made it burrow underneath and become bigger, worse, and dangerous. 2 Timothy 4.10 Mark joined the chocolate brigade once. He left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch and went back to Jerusalem for a rest cure, a religious retreat. Thank God he got sick of it ere long, resigned his commission, and re-enlisting in God's army became a useful soldier. Acts 13 Many fine youngsters are turned into chocolates by old prophets, old prophets who have lost their fire or fire off words instead of deeds, usually become great chocolate manufacturers. That poor young prophet, he did so well when he obeyed God only, but it was all over with him when he listened to another voice, even though that of an old prophet. Didn't the old prophet say he was a prophet and say he'd got the message straight from God? What a damnable lie. The floor of Christendom and elsewhere is littered with wrecks made by old prophets. God won't stand nonsense from any man. Every man has to choose between Christ and Barabbas, and every Christian between God and some old prophet. Better be a silly donkey in the estimation of an old prophet than listen to his soft talk and flattery, and afterwards become a wreck. This is my beloved son. Hear him. No, not even Moses, nor Elijah, nor both. Hear him. The ten spies were chocolates. They melted and ran over the whole congregation of Israel, turning them into chocolate cream softies. Afraid to face the fire and water before them, God put them all into the saucepan again and boiled them for 40 years in the desert and left them there. He has no use for chocolates. It's not small things he despises, but chocolates. For he said, your little ones shall inherit the promised land which you have forfeited through listening to men and despising me. Numbers 13. Jonah became a chocolate soldier once. Told to go to Africa, he went to Liverpool and took ship for America. Luckily, he met a storm and whale which, after three days' instruction, taught him how to pray and obey and set him once again on the right track. There's nothing that shows up chocolate so much as a bit of breeze among God's people. Paul and Barnabas had one once. Judging from experience, I guess there were some chocolates about then who got into a fog right away. Before that, they had vowed they would go to the heathen, but this breeze between P and B put them off. If they hadn't been made of chocolate, they would have said, this affair between Paul and Barnabas only makes it more necessary for me to keep close to God and do what he told me to do more exactly and punctually. So I shall go a bit sooner to Africa, that's all. Difficulties, dangers, disease, death, or diversion—or pardon me, or divisions don't deter any but chocolates from executing God's will. When someone says there's a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly replies, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to go. Chocolates are very fond of talking loud and long against some whom they call fanatics, as though there were any danger of Christians being fanatics nowadays. Why, fanatics among Christians are as rare as the dodo. Now, if they declaimed against stupidity, they would talk sense. 
God's real people have always been called fanatics. Jesus was called mad, so was Paul, so was Whitfield, Wesley, Moody, Spurgeon. No one has graduated far in God's school has not been paid the compliment of being called a fanatic. We Christians of today are indeed a tepid crew. Had we but half the fire and enthusiasm of the suffragettes in the past, we would have the world evangelized and Christ back among us in no time. Had we the pluck and heroism of the flyers or the men who volunteered for the North or South Polar expeditions or for the Great War or for any ordinary daredevil enterprise, we could have every soul on earth knowing the name and salvation of Jesus Christ in less than ten years. Alas, What stirs ordinary men's blood and turns them into heroes makes most Christians run like a flock of frightened sheep. The militants daily risked their lives in furtherance of their cause and subscribed of their means in a way that cried shame on us Christians, who generally brand the braving of risks and fighting against odds as a tempting of God. Chocolate caramels, stick jaw, boys call them jawing. I go, sir. And sticking fast in Christendom, no conquest is made in assured safety, and conquest for Christ certainly cannot so be made. We Christians too often substitute prayer for playing the game. Prayer is good, but when used as a substitute for obedience, it is naught but a blatant hypocrisy, a despicable Phariseeism. We need as many meetings for action as for prayer, perhaps more. Every Orthodox prayer meeting is opened by God, saying to his people, Go work today. Pray that laborers be sent into my vineyard. It is continued by the Christian's response, I go, Lord, whithersoever thou sendest me, that thy name may be hallowed everywhere, that thy kingdom may come speedily, that thy will may be done on the earth as it is in heaven. But if it ends in nobody going anywhere, it had better never had been held at all. Like faith, prayer without works is dead. That is why many prayer meetings might well be styled, Much cry, yet little wool. Zerubbabel didn't only hold prayer meetings. He went and cut down trees and started to build. Hence God said, From this day will I bless thee. Report says that someone has rediscovered the secret of the old masters. Cannot we Christians rediscover and put into practice that of our great master and his former pupils? Heroism? He and they saved not themselves. They loved not their lives to the death and so kept on saving them by losing them for Christ's sake. We are frittering away time and money in a multiplicity of conventions, conferences, and retreats when the real need is to go straight and full steam into battle with the signal for close action flying. The Vox Humana plays too important a part in our Christian organs and organizations today. The music, whoever plays, is bound to be thin when the tops of instant obedience and fiery valor are missing or unused, and without them to play the lost chord of heroism is an impossibility. Do let us make a real start now at once. For years, like Mr. Wrinkle, we've declared we were just about to begin, and then never began at all. We must divorce chocolate and disobedience and marry faith, and heroism. Who shall begin the battle? asked the king. Thou, replied the prophet. And when the king and the young princes led the way, though the odds against them were terrific, they won with ridiculous ease. 
so too the apostles led in the war of God to the uttermost parts of the earth. Likewise in the Crusades, the kings and princes of state and church led. Then why not today in the crusade of Christ to evangelize the world? God's summons today is to the young men and women of Great Britain and America and Christendom who call themselves by the name of Christ. New wine, said Christ, must be placed in new bottles. Those superfluously labeled and patched up old-fashioned ones are as hopeless as the new theology. They can't be moved lest they burst with pride and spill the wine in the wrong place. Wilt thou be to Christ the partner of his throne or an emetic? An emetic is um, a device that's used to cause vomiting. He's referring to being lukewarm and Christ vomiting us out of his mouth. Wilt thou be to Christ the partner of his throne or an emetic, a militant or a chocolate soldier? Wilt thou fear or wilt thou fight? Shall your brethren go to war and shall you sit here? When he comes, shall he find faith on the earth? A thousand times you have admitted Christ's love so amazing, so divine, demands your life, your soul, your all. Wilt thou be a miser and withhold what honor demands of thee? Wilt thou give, like Ananias and Sapphira, who pretending to give all, only gave part? Possessing and enjoying the vineyard, wilt thou, like the husbandman, refuse the agreed rent? Wilt thou fear death or devil or men? And wilt thou not fear shame? Some shall rise to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Shall we refuse to emulate the heroes of old, or shall we accomplish the double fulfillment of those glorious words? All these being men of war came with a perfect heart to make Jesus king over all the world. They were all mighty men of valor for the war. He that was least was equal to a hundred and the greatest to a thousand. They were not of double heart. Their faces were like the faces of lions. They were as swift as the rose upon the mountains to do their Lord's commands. Shall we not reply, Thine are we, Jesus, and on thy side? God, do so to me, and more also, if as God has sworn unto him, I do not even so to Jesus, to translate the kingdom from the house of Satan, and set up the throne of Jesus Christ over all the world. He has many scripture verses he puts in these things. Come, then, let us restore the lost cord of Christianity, heroism to the world, and the crown of the world to Christ. Christ himself asked thee, Wilt thou be a malingerer? A malingerer is someone who pretends or exaggerates incapacity or illness as to avoid duty or work. Wilt thou be a malingerer or a militant? To your knees, man, and to your Bible. Decide at once. Don't hedge. Time flies Cease your insults to God. Quit consulting flesh and blood. Stop your lame, lying, and cowardly excuses. Enlist. Here are your papers. An oath of allegiance. Scratch out one aside and sign the other in the presence of God and recording angel. Mark God's endorsements underneath. And then he has a literal place for you to sign one or the other in his Chocolate Soldier article. Henceforth, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'll be a militant, a man of God, 
a gambler for Christ, a hero. Sign here. Or, for me, chocolate my name, tepidity my temperature, a malingerer I, a child of men, a self-excuser, a humbug. Sign here. God's promises are sure in either case. Lo, I am with you always, or I will spew thee out of my mouth. Good Lord, baptize us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Cure us of all this dread plague of sleeping sickness, this crazy talking in our sleep, that even as we unceasingly pray, thy name be hallowed everywhere, thy kingdom come speedily, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. Such was the writing of C.T. Studd in his article, The Chocolate Soldier. Now, I want to show you an eight-minute video here, which will show you some Christian men who were actual Roman soldiers, and will give you a history of what they did in the year 320, so you can see the exact opposite of the chocolate soldiers that C.T. Sud was talking about. Maybe we could dim the lights a little bit. The Christian soldier. Most often we think of it as a metaphor. Such as when the Bible verse encourages us to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps the one that urges us to put on the whole armor of God. But sometimes, sometimes, the metaphor meets the literal. From time to time, we encounter soldiers who are also Christians. In fact, the first Gentile convert in the book of Acts was a Roman soldier, Cornelius. And Jesus encountered the Roman centurion and said that his faith was to be compared to all the faith of Israel, a greater faith. This morning as we start our day, I want us to consider 40 such men, literal soldiers, who are also good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Soldiers willing to give to Christ their captain the last full measure of their devotion. These 40 men were Roman soldiers. The year is 320 AD. Our story takes place in Armenia, near the town of Sebasti. Two men ruled in Rome at that time, Constantine in the east and Licinius in the west. Nine years earlier, Constantine had experienced a miraculous vision of a cross and soon thereafter began to grant religious tolerations to Christians within the Roman Empire. This change that encouraged Christians was revolutionary. And revolutionary change is drastic. And in history, when drastic change happens, it's always fought against. The other emperor 
Licinius did not share Constantine's faith. He did not share his sense of tolerance for the faith of others. And he set out to stop the influence of Christ within the empire. So Licinius ordered that all Christians in the army recant their faith and show their allegiance to the gods of Rome and do so in a public display, bow down to the idols. Perhaps inspired by the three Hebrew children, the forty soldiers of Sebasti refused to bow down and worship a pagan god, even upon the penalty of their torture or the penalty of their death. When minor tortures did not cause any of the forty soldiers to recant or bow down to the pagan gods, a torture was devised that would lead to a slow and painful death, the opposite of the fiery furnace, an ordeal of cold and ice. They were to be stripped naked and made to stand fully exposed, their bare feet melded to the icy floor of the frozen lake. They did not give up their faith. They would slowly and painfully freeze to death. Witnesses say these good soldiers of Christ did not retreat. They voluntarily began to disrobe and calmly and bravely marched out onto the frozen lake bed. There they stood, naked and shivering, subject to frostbite in their extremities. Forty men, forty soldiers, with resolve, that refused to recant. They refused to recant even when the remaining soldiers of their company were ordered to prepare fires on the shoreline and to fill tubs with hot steaming water that would welcome them in thawing comfort if they would but recant. But the forty soldiers, they stood firm. Some began to lose their lives. But when they died, the others did not break rank. Warmth was on the shore, fires there, tubs of hot water there. But they stood firm all morning, all evening, and into the night. Unfortunately, finally, one weakened soul could stand it no longer. And he broke ranks with those forty and staggered to the shore to be warmed in the hot water. And yet, even though one had broken ranks, the remaining 39 had no break in their morale. They were unchanged. And then something marvelous and miraculous occurred. A soldier who was on the shoreline with the fires and the tubs of water was stunned by this show of faith. And God granted him a special vision and miracle. And that vision was part of his conversion experience. And when he saw that the number of soldiers on the ice had dwindled to 39, 
this brand new soldier of Jesus Christ began to disrobe and he walked out to the ice and joined the ranks. They were 40 again. And there on the ice, hour after hour, life ebbed out of all 40 soldiers to die in the faith, for the faith, and inspire us today in our faith. The 40 Martyrs of Sebasti. Centuries later, a man named Isaac Watts would go to preach on the text, 1 Corinthians 16 and 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. And perhaps remembering Watts's own father, who had twice been in prison for preaching the gospel, Watts sat down and penned the beloved hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? We sing four verses mainly, but here are two verses rarely seen in our hymn books from the pen of Isaac Watts. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith's discerning eye. And when that illustrious day shall rise and all thine armies shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. Available right on YouTube. Didn't go viral, needless to say. Now, the story you just saw, a man named Tom Green back in the 1970s wrote a song about this historical story of these Christian soldiers. And uh, when I was first converted to Christ over in Detroit, Michigan at Brightmore Tabernacle, uh, Tom Green actually came to the congregation there and sang the song you're about to see. The song uh, left an indelible mark on my life, all my life. And I hope it does the same for you. So I want to play that song for you now. Sixteen hundred years ago, the pride of the Roman army, the 12th Legion, was stationed at Sebaste, just south of the Black Sea. It was midwinter, and a harsh order had just come by messenger from the capital at Constantinople. Reigning as emperor at this time was Valerius Licinius, whose vicious hate for Christianity had caused the death of untold thousands of martyrs. Snow was falling as the emperor's new law was read to the soldiers standing at attention. Under penalty of death, read the commander, all members of the Roman army must at once offer sacrifices to the emperor and acknowledge him as their one and their true god. No one blinked an eye. They were Roman soldiers, the most highly disciplined in the world. 
but every mind immediately went to the forty among their ranks who were Christians. The same thought went through each soldier's mind. The Christians will never sacrifice to the emperor. They will never desert their God. Forty brave soldiers for Jesus. Forty brave soldiers for Christ. We'll be true to our God and stare death in the face. Though we perish on this lake of ice, we'll be forty brave soldiers for Christ. As soon as the soldiers were dismissed, a captain came to the commander's tent and announced that there were forty soldiers who would not perform the sacrifice to the emperor. They were immediately arrested and put in the custody of Aglios, the chief jailer, who marched them off to military court. The commander opened the trial's formalities by saying, Of all the soldiers who serve the empire, none are more loved by us nor more needed right now than you. Do not turn our love and respect to hate and contempt. How important can this Jesus be? Bow down to the emperor and this will all be over. But the leader of the forty said firmly, The word of God says thou shalt not have any gods before me. We have made our choice. We will not sacrifice to the emperor. We will devote our love to the living God. Forty brave soldiers for Jesus. Forty brave soldiers for Christ. We'll be true to our God and stare death in the face. Though we perish on this lake of ice. We'll be forty brave soldiers for Christ. Because he did not have the authority to sentence the Christians to death, the commander had to wait for the arrival of the inspector general, who would be making a visit to the 12th legion in about a week. The Christians were put in the custody of Aglios the jailer for that entire week. When the general came, he agreed with the decision of the commander and gave the Christians a choice. Worship the emperor or be delivered over to torture and death. The Christians remained firm. You can have our armor, they said, our names, our very lives. We have made our choice. We prefer God. Then the soldiers heard their sentence. They were to be bound with strong ropes and led to the shore of a nearby frozen lake or at sundown they were to be stripped and marched out to the middle of the ice. At any time they could change their minds and go through the ritual of sacrifice to the emperor in a heated bathhouse on the lake shore. Aglios the jailer who had been caring for the men for a week watched as the forty soldiers were stripped and marched shivering onto the ice and into the darkness. Guards were posted all around the shore to make sure they did not try to escape. As they marched, they sang, Forty brave soldiers for Jesus. Forty brave soldiers for Christ. We'll be true to our God and stare death in the face as we perish on this lake of ice. We'll be forty brave soldiers for Christ. For a while their song echoed all through the camp. But as the hour of midnight approached and the temperature continued to drop, their voices grew more and more weak. 
Then one of the forty was seen emerging from the frigid darkness. He was giving up. He would sacrifice to the emperor. He fell to his knees on the shore and began crawling to the bathhouse. Only Aglios the jailer was awake to hear the thin voices of the ones still on the ice shiver. Thirty-nine brave soldiers for Jesus. Aglios watched the man enter the bathhouse and emerge quickly, apparently overcome by the heat. He saw the man collapse on the ground and lie still. At that moment, something happened to the heart of Aglios the jailer. What it was, only he and God will ever know. The guards reported hearing a great cry which jerked them awake. Rubbing their eyes, they watched as Aglios wrenched off his armor and ran onto the frozen lake and into the darkness, shouting, Forty brave soldiers for Jesus. Forty brave soldiers for Christ. We'll be true to our God and stare death in the face as we perish on this lake of ice. We'll be forty brave soldiers for Christ.